Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to another BrickBlitz.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright. And today's guest is a neighbor from Leighton, which is a rare treat for me, as I don't often get to speak to people face-to-face. But my guest is more famous, I suppose, for being that in-house remixer and DJ for Indie Rockers Hard Five. Um, I'm talking to DJ Wrong Tom. Welcome to the show. Hello. Cheers for getting us in. You, you, you may, be, may or may not be surprised. You're not the longest I've taken to arrange to interview somebody. I've managed to take... I think three years once. From I the, think from this the... was about three years. Are we three it? years? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, maybe maybe you equaled it. Because we spoke, must have been about, yeah, it was 2020. It was, it was probably during lockdown. Yeah. And I'd just moved pretty much across the road from you at the time. And I think I had this thing at the back of my mind that like maybe I should do something a little bit more film related to justify being on the show, <laughs> on your podcast. Because <laughs> it's I don't, no one knows anything about any of my film credentials, if you could call them that. Well, the great thing is I've developed a format which allows people without direct film credentials now to come on to talk about their fandom of film, which is three films yeah. that have impacted everything in their life. And you've given me three films. But I'd like, while, while I've got you here, I'd like to take advantage of that and ask you a couple of questions about the art of remixing and producing, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. Let me start at the top so you can give people an example of your work. Uh, what's a favourite remix you've done of an existing song or tune and why is it a favourite? That is a tough one because I've made, I've done a lot of remixes. Mm. I, I was trying to work it out a little while ago. I think it's nearing almost 300. Okay, so I revise the question to an in, what's an interesting remix you've had to do and why is it interesting? No, I mean, like, if there is a favorite. Okay, okay. Um, because I've, I've, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot and I think, I often think about favorites anyway, you know, and think about like favorite films, favorite songs, whatever. And it, it's, mm. it's almost ridiculous to have one particular song, but there is. And uh, for me, it was when around the time I started doing the hard fire stuff, they got me to remix a track called Middle Eastern Holiday, mm-hmm. which was almost a single. And then at the last minute, I think someone at the label or someone in the band realized that it was a bit of an odd song. It's got it's in three sections. It's kind of like this up tempo up tempo rock tune, and then suddenly it turns into this kind of dubby track in the middle. It's very very clash esque, mm. and um, and it 
it was kind of like, okay, this isn't going to be the single, but we're giving you the, the stems anyway. So, you know, carry on with your remix. And it ended up as the B-side for the single, for the, I think it was the second single, Tied Up Too Tight, maybe. And uh, I did one mix. I decided because it had these three sections that I was going to do three different remixes. So I did one that was this kind of downbeat, almost kind of, it was almost like a funk thing, mm. um, which didn't quite work, but it got released. And then I took the middle section, which was the dub section, and I, I just thought, right, I'm going to do something that really sounds like an old kind of Augustus Pablo dub record of, of some sort. And then I had another one, which was a kind of almost like post-punk disco kind of thing, like real kind of sort of thing that LCD sound system are doing in the, in the noughties. Mm. Um, and then I found out Chicken Lips had done one for the same tune exactly like that and delivered it. So I was like, okay, ditch that one and focus on the dub. And I'd been thinking about doing dub stuff since I was a teenager and I started playing in bands. And I was always kind of like, is it really my place to do it? Then I thought, well, fuck it. I've been listening to this stuff, you know, since I was a kid. And if I can do it, then it's my place to do it, right? So I gave it a go and it I, it wound up coming out as a seven inch that came free with the album if you bought it from HMV, which was a weird thing because, you know, people were buying a CD of it and getting this seven inch of a dub <laughs> tune. Two sides. It's got me playing melodica on one side, like, you know, Augustus Pablo style. And I'm sure most people that got it, some of them probably didn't even have anything to play it on. And then other people would put it on and go, what? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I just love the fact that they decided that it was worth doing this and yeah. it became this like weird little collectible oddity. But the thing that got me about it was I had a, had a vision for it and it worked. And it was the first time after, I, I'm self-taught, you know, I, I mm. took up um, producing pretty much, well, I left uni in 99. Mm. And I bought some gear and thought, right, I'm going to teach myself to do this because I've been playing in bands for years and it's always a compromise and it's always a pain in the ass. And I want to learn to do this myself and be able to just do what's in my head and get it out there. And then I sat down and realized that I'm, <laughs> I'm not quite capable of that. So yeah, so it must have been what, like 2004, I think I, I was making it. So five years down the line of like teaching myself relentlessly, trying to get this off the ground, you know, I'd been a dolly. When, when you when you self taught, what is it? What did you? What was the hardest, the biggest hill to climb in terms of self taught musician? I mean, it's it's hard to say because I don't know what the alternative is. You know? <laughs> well, okay. But, what do you remember being the hardest thing to do though, in terms of like what you were when you were trying to achieve something that you it never was sounding how you you know when you you say I, think, I want this to sound like this, it's not sounding like. I this. mean, that is the hardest thing. Isn't it? It's like it's like <laughs> trying to find the way of getting it done, and like and then. And then, you know, YouTube didn't exist. So you couldn't watch people to learn how they played something. And what I wound up doing was just getting lots of instruments and learning to play them, like, you know, the, learning the, the basic rudiments of things. Yeah. So originally my idea was like, if I'm going to be a producer, I'm going to teach, you know, like, I'm not teach, I'm going to be able to show people what I want or like what I want them to do. And it's good to have a basic knowledge of yeah. what, they, what they're doing. And after a bit, I was like, well, if I just learn to play them well enough to record a bit of it and chop it up, yeah. then <laughs> I could save money on having session musicians and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, that was, it was somewhere, it was, I, it's like an intangible thing for me. It, it happened and I managed to overcome that hurdle mm. with that track. Because I think that's when I think, you know, you think of a band like The Fall and Marky e. Smith's turnover of band members because he couldn't play a note. Yeah. So he had to get collaborators in to then explain this yeah, yeah. intangible 
yeah. until they got it right, which you can see why he yeah. probably had a high turnover of band members. But that's, I mean, it's it's almost like a, a almost like a situationist experiment, the fool, isn't it? And there's one, there's one fool song that I absolutely love. It's not his song, it's a cover of the monks. Um, is it the monks? No, hang on. No, the song's called Black Monk 2. It is the, is is the it, monks. Is it the monks? Yeah, it's the black yeah. monks. Um, so yeah, it's produced by Cold Cut, weirdly. It's almost like a house tune. Mm. And I think it was a B-side. And there's a bit where there's a key change and he literally just goes, key changer! Because <laughs> he's obviously not like, the first time he's heard this. And it's him just kind of responding to what other people are doing. So like he's... He is there. Were, there probably was a point where he's trying to get people to do what he wanted, but there's also that other side of the fall where people did stuff and he just responded to it and gave you a running commentary of what was happening. There's a, there's a, which I don't is fascinating. There's, there's a mouse on Mars one that's quite similar to that, but where they're collaborating with him, and the beginning of the track is him telling him what he wants. He goes, <laughs> "I want the drum to go," and then the tune just becomes the tune. It's, yeah, he's, you stop hearing him. And but they put his voice in the beginning of the yeah. recording, like the key change. Yeah, brilliant. Um, for the layperson, now we know what a musician is. They go in, they go in the studio, they make music, or they go on stage, they make music. But can you explain the role of a producer in in relation to when you're making an album? What is it? What? Well, how would you how would you describe? It? Because producers get a lot of credit, or producers are completely anonymous. It seems it yeah. seems to me somewhere between the two, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it's. It's a real grey area now anyway. I mean, there was, you know, traditionally back in the day, the producer was that guy in the suit that was in the room that was basically like telling them, them telling the musicians what to play and how to play it, hmm. when to stop. And gradually somewhere down the line, they became an artist in their own right. Yeah, that's what that's So why. it's a really hard thing to answer now. And it's going to, from my point of view, I'm an artist producer, okay. I guess. Yeah. You know, like I, I don't like any of these terms. Hmm. You know, I'm just a guy that bashes away and makes sounds but yeah I mean essentially that's that's what I am I'm like you know I'm, I'm my name as an artist and I produce tunes and I get people in to play stuff but I also play stuff myself mm. but yeah in, in the modern modern sense I think a producer is I mean they're kind of everything now it's almost like you with like having to keep an eye on on your levels on your on the you know on your sound recorder and mm. you're interviewing me it's, it's like we've all got to be all of these things now yeah um but traditionally a producer is the person that has like a kind of an idea of a sound and an aesthetic and has like the bigger picture of what an album is going to be or what a song mm. is going to be and gets everyone in place I guess like in in some ways, it's not the same as a film because a yeah. producer is probably more creative than a producer on film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, but then again, you know, if you think about, I mean, I can I'm, the sort of biggest example I can think of where the producer made a difference in terms of a band, and I don't mean that good or bad. If you listen to Nevermind and In Utero, yeah, they're they're complete. They, they sound like different bands because yeah. of the producer that made the record, not because the band. None of the band members changed. Yeah. But the producer did. And that 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 ended up being the sound, yeah, didn't it? Totally. And it was like it was how he got them to play. And sometimes you get a band that they just can't stand what a producer did to them. That's and right. it would be like a, a massive album. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but there's, you know, there's albums out there where mm. they were a fantastic success and the band are like, we hate that because it didn't sound like us. I can't think of it. If I think it's the producer's fault, but I know that was that was certainly the Lars story. They were never happy with the sound they no. created, or even Kevin Shields on Loveless. Mm. He was never happy with what they what the sound of Loveless. No, 
drove, you know, they drove creation to bankruptcy. But you've been working in music now, what, for more than two decades now as a kind yeah. of, as a, as a job? Yeah, I'd say, you know, like, quote unquote, professionally, 20 years. So, 20 years where, obviously, you were a fan first and you're still a fan to this day. How does someone working with music, work, trying to create music, trying to keep their head in the music game, as it were, how do you keep the flame of being a music fan alive? I don't. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, it, it, just, just it just hasn't stopped. Now? I think, no, no. It's, it's, it's funny. I think because I've never really, I've never been that successful, mm. you know, like to, to the degree of like, you know, I've like, I've, I don't, I, it barely pays my mortgage, mm. you know, of like it, I, I just about keep afloat from it. It's not like I've ever had a massive hit. Right. And in some ways that's great because it means that I don't have something that's that like that I have to replicate or something that like, well, you did that. We want you to keep doing this. Okay. So I've always managed to just keep plowing along and learning new stuff as I go and, and doing fresh stuff and doing the things that I want to do. Mm. Because there's no kind of like there's there's no need to hark back to something and say I need to I need to put bums on seats I need to get this many people mm. listening to it. No one's going to go oh well you know you haven't replicated what you did with that record because like you know so many people still come to me and go like well what have you done? <laughs> You've been around for twenty years. What have you been doing? And uh, you know with with hard fight it's funny because people are kind of like oh you work with hard fight and like there's there's a certain demographic that like oh you know indie pop really and then they they find out what i did was make difficult dub records <laughs> that like somehow atlantic records bankrolled and i've just i've just had a really strange niche in the industry hmm. and and I've, I've been very lucky in that respect and also unlucky because i've never made any money because in that in that 20 years essentially we've gone from a sort of predominantly physical media to every single piece of music is almost out of fingertips now um, and as a, as a fan, as a person trying to make music and be inspired by music, how in this modern era do you do you allow yourself to either a plow your own furrow, which is kind of what would have happened when music? Because in, in many ways, to me, it feels like music and film very similar. They've got cheaper, so it's easy to get more access to it. Whereas when I first started out with any of it, everything you bought was precious because it was expensive as a as an item. Yeah, um, but also how do you find hidden gems if you're going to be like remixing or you're going to be introducing some new sound that's going to be a surprise to people but exciting when everyone else can Google, everyone else yeah. can search? So, Well, I think it's, I mean, one of the things is people still go for the stuff that they know, okay. even with all that stuff out there. So all it really means is there's more of a chance that you're going to find hidden gems because somebody that's got a real love for it has gone out and compiled an album of like in like weird you know some kind of like psych welsh folk or something yeah, like yeah, you know yeah. there's there's ways of of discovering stuff that you wouldn't have been able to do before without going to a place like flying to another country and being that person digging through vinyl um so there's obviously there's more opportunity to be a specialist in some ways. Okay, that's interesting. Um, but at the same time, there's also stuff that isn't up there, which makes it even more precious. And it was funny. I've been, for ages, I've been trying to get some money together and haven't been able to, to put out the follow-up to um, a, a, an album that I put together, a compilation I put together like uh, 11 years ago now mm. called Spiky Dread. 
which is basically, you know, essentially it's, it's punky reggae. Okay. You know, it's punk and post-punk bands that made reggae and dub tunes. And the first one I went for, I, I played it safe and I got bad brains, I got the slits and I got people like that. Mm. But the, the track that actually sold it, the distributor told me, was my brother-in-law's band from 1982 that never released their music because they split up before they'd actually finished recording pretty mm. much. And they featured um, one of the Cardiacs was their drummer. Oh, wow. And Cardiacs completists heard about this and went, we need this. It was like, you know, they've been waiting for this to oh come. My it was a record they didn't know they needed. And I was just like, right. So really what I should be doing is finding the stuff that you can't find online. And, and so I spent the last decade finding or going through my records and finding records that you can't, you know, that aren't on Spotify, that everyone's forgotten about, self-release things. There's, I mean, there's that era, like the punk era, the DIY mm. post-punk era, like all around the turn of the 80s, I've always found really fascinating. And so that's what I've been doing, like finding those tunes that no one's seen and trying to get them out there to people. You know, so that it's out there and I think that's it. Just find stuff that people made for the love of it. Mm. So it's like I bet you're sort of doing like what Nuggets and Pebbles did for yeah. Psych Rock. You're doing for like that post-punk period. Precisely. Yeah. Oh, wow. Nice one. And what have you, have you got anything, is anything up your sleeve that's, that's, that's imminent? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, second, the second album's been, um, uh, I mean, about three years ago, I had it already pretty much. I had the track list and I've spoken mm. to lots of people and I had it ready to be licensed. And then COVID happened and had no income. You know, and I've, I've just been struggling to pay the bills ever since. Yeah. So it's just sitting there waiting. Sadly, like three different people that I was I was dealing with died in that time. Oh, wow. Um, which is sadly the nature of, I guess, like that era. We're losing a lot of them, mm. you know. So, you know, whether I can get it out, I don't know. If I can find someone to, that wants to get behind it and fund it, give us a shout. We're going to work, move into three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. Okay. Uh, the rules of the game are simple. You've given me three films. I've got a timer. And every time we reach five minutes, we'll hear this sound. The great thing is you're sat opposite me. I don't have to say, can you hear that? Because if you can't... I've got problems. And you've gone temporarily deaf <laughs> in between the last conversation we had. Um, so that will go off. We will start without further ado with the first one in your list, which is the classic space opera, Star Wars. I'm guessing The New Hope, You were, when you said yeah, Star have, Wars. Have you, have you, so you've heard of it. It's, a, it's an obscure, <laughs> obscure 1977 film well, people, by a director called George Lucas. That, like, well, when people say Star Wars now, it could mean, it could mean the whole franchise. Yeah. But obviously no, no. To, to, to us, yes. Let's, it, let's, just, let's just assume for this these five minutes that the only film that exists is Star Wars. Okay. One film, 1977. So when, where, where are you seeing this for the first time? First time I saw it, I was three years old. Okay. Um, so that would have been 1978. And because uh, it didn't come out, a lot of people don't realize that it didn't come out until right at the end of 1977, just after Christmas in the okay. UK. And it stayed at the cinemas for months and months. You know, like it's, it's not like today where like films, everyone goes to the first weekend and then you basically go to an empty cinema. Mm. Um, so we went probably around May 1978. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? 
And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I would have been just turning three. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't remember it because I was three. Yeah. <laughs> or just about three. Um, but it's like a kind of res- residual memory. Right. I think we saw it in Kingston, Kingston upon Thames in Southwest London, in a tiny little cinema that became a pine shop. <laughs> mm-hmm. Years later. I think it's gone now. I think the Rotunda Center is on the site. Weirdly, uh, my local screen my screen. local cinema became a pine shop, really? then a block of flats. Maybe this maybe it's a thing. I think it's just big mm. space for furniture. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even my local cinema. We lived uh, we lived in this town called Stoneleigh, which is sort of somewhere between. It's kind of like in the access of Wimbledon, Epsom, and, and Kingston. So how how does how does a, me- a film you don't remember seeing stay in the memory <laughs> that you saw it? Well, tell, tell, explain this to us. So when as i was growing up obviously the first thing that really hit me that i became aware of with the figures mm. in 78 my brother started getting them he was he's three and a half years older than me and he was playing with them and that suddenly i had these like toys and these pictures on the back of the boxes and there mm. was this kind of this you know like character construction and and a story coming out mm. so there's actually there's two two versions of star wars in my head there's the one that i know and everyone knows and then there's the one that my brother lied to me about as we were playing with the figures and he made up all this shit about all these <laughs> characters that was nonsense so when i saw it on i think i think it got shown on telly mm. you know probably not the start the first star wars film got shown on telly quite quickly and I remember like in the early 80s having it taped off telly and I used to watch it religiously. Hmm. And it wasn't the film that you told me about. Um, but the other thing was I had, had a best mate. Let's, let's go, let's, let's skip forward to about 1982. Okay. 
had a best mate called Paul Withers and the pair of us were like obsessed with Star Wars figures and we used to watch it. We, he had it on tape as well off the mm. telly. And that, and you know, we'd seen Empire Strikes Back by this point and we were completely invested in it. And so we were sitting there one day and I remember having this conversation. I was probably about seven years old and we worked out that they weren't in space and <laughs> they weren't in the Death Star. They were just in a room somewhere being filmed. <laughs> And it was, I don't know, I don't know what, it, what occurred to us. It was just like, that's, you know, this isn't, you can't go to space. You can't go and film this stuff. They're just in a building and someone's built it and someone's constructed this entire world to film. And you as moment, children were deconstructing yeah, the fourth wall. years war. old. Honest to God, we had this conversation. We, and, you know, it was obviously like it was probably a little less analytical than this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I'm not saying this is particularly analytical anyway, but we worked out. They were in a room and someone had built it and that was what filmmaking was. And I was like, fuck, I want to do this. I want to, I want to create worlds. I want to, I want to be inside that TV. I want to, I don't want to be in it. Yeah. But I want to be the person that's putting that stuff inside that TV or putting it on that screen. And so I remember being very young and I, I had that moment around sort of seven or eight. I was just like, I want to be a filmmaker. And like the, the silliest thing was I looked at like pictures of film directors and I was kind of like, what do I need to be that? And one of the things that I saw was George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, Spielberg. They all had beards. <laughs> <laughs> And I've got a beard now, but I'm still not a filmmaker. Um, but the other thing is, so there's actually three Star Wars films. Okay. There's three versions of this film. So the, the thing, as I got older and I started breaking down what, what film was and, and art, what art was and what music was and all that, because at the same time I was really getting into music, hmm. um, I realized there was something more to this film than just like a space opera, something more than a big blockbuster. Oh, can I just finish this off? You finish this so, off. It's it's a DIY film. It's an experimental film. You know, it's it's the world's biggest budget experimental film. This was a guy who loved um, directors like Arthur Lipsit. Uh, I don't know if you know the Arthur Lipsit. Um, he made a short film. He's a Canadian um, artist filmmaker in the okay. early sixties. He made a film called 20, 2187, right? Which was just a load of. Um, uh, kind of vignettes of like flashing images set to um, uh, kind of sound montages. I think it started as a sound montage and then he put images to it. Okay. And cut loads of stuff really fast to it. And George Lucas saw that when he was at film school and his first film, Look at Life, was one minute of stuff edited to a drumbeat in the same style as 2187. He loved 2187 so much that actually the scene when they uh, say Princess Leia, she's in... Uh, Prisoner's Cell Block 2187. When uh, J.J. Abrams made his Star Wars film that does exist, but we I shouldn't be talking about it after what I said, but um, uh, what's his name? John Baega's character is FN1, uh, sorry, FN2187. You know, so it's like, wow, this is an important I thing. I was really into experimental film by yeah. this point as I was getting in, into my early teens and I started watching people like uh, John O'Confra, and that I was looking back to like, um, uh, oh, what's, I've, I've forgotten everyone's name, William Klein, Chris Marker. And I realized that George Lucas was watching these films. And if you watch the first Star Wars film, for what it, what it really is, it was him expanding on his experimentation mm. 
and putting that and finding a way of, of taking that to the public, to the mass market and showing them an experimental film, which is why I think that's really fucking important. And so like on one side, yeah, it basically affected me because I was watching, I was a kid watching this mm. fantasy film, but at the same time, it also taught me a lot about DIY, not building shelves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. like, cause I'm yeah. shit at that, but like making art based on, you know, what I have around me. And that's continued on to my music because I didn't really follow it as a film career. Right then. Well, I wasn't expecting that <laughs> sidebar, but thank you. Um, right. So we're going to jump to 1970 for your second choice. Yeah. Uh, Brian, Brian De Palma's a name I know. Yeah. Now you've just thrown a load of names at me, which I didn't know. And I didn't know this film title, Hi Mum, uh, which is summarized on IMDb as a Vietnam vet moves into an apartment and peers through other people's windows across the street, meets a woman, and discovers black theatre. I mean, it's not high concept. So <laughs> tell us tell us where you are on the bus of, of meeting this film. Where, I where mean, did it's you, basically where... a story of my life. You know, it's just, <laughs> I, I saw it and I was like, this feels like me. Um, I saw this film late night on cable. Like We, we got cable when I was a teenager at my mum mm. uh, and dad's house. It sort of came to Stoneleigh. And suddenly there were all these like extra channels. And I remember being up late one night. I was, I think I just started art school. Mm. And I was just like watching any kind of weird shit that I could see and just tapping into culture, you know. Mm. And um, and I was up late, nothing better to do. And this film came on and I was just like, what's this? This is very unusual. That looks like Robert De Niro, but he looks very young. Mm. And... I was just completely like, you know, knocked sideways by this film. It's, 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 it's kind of clunky, you know, it's like, it's obviously like it's early Brian De Palma. It's kind of, again, it's a DIY thing. It's, it's very much the product of, of that kind of downtown New York mm. being a bit like, um, you know, Robert Downey's films of the sixties or whatever. It's slightly anarchic. It's kind of, it's got jokes that don't always land, but at the same time, it was just amazing to see Robert De Niro, very fresh faced, kind of cutting his teeth and doing all the things that we'd get to know him as. There's, li there's literally a scene in this film where he does the whole, like you talking to me. Oh really? Yeah. Like where he's, um, he's auditioning for the role in this like off, 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 off Broadway production um where he has to play like a racist policeman and he, he then he gets really into character and starts talking to a broom <laughs> and like treating it like it's like a sort of a so, there's, so, so in, in, a, in a weird way there is a kind of almost like a space continuum where that character could have been travis bickle and taxi driver could have been a Absolutely. continuation of the story yeah <laughs> completely because it ends with him sorry to ruin it if no one's seen it but it ends with him going to vietnam um, sorry, no, actually, no, I'm confusing things. So the the most confusing thing about this is when I saw it, I didn't realize it's a sequel to a film called Greetings. Okay. Where it ends with him going to Vietnam. The The premise of Greetings is it's him and his mates in, in Greenwich Village desperately trying to get out of going to Vietnam. So right, they're like finding okay. ways and he fails and ends up there. So this follows on from that and he's a Vietnam veteran and he's um, he's just trying to make it in the world of of art, and he gets involved in a porn company where he convinces this guy to um, to give him the money to make what the guy thinks is going to be a porn film. It's what he describes as peep art, mm. 
And it's just his kind of like his DIY art idea of like pointing his camera and filming people from across the way. And then he infiltrates their lives to try and then justify the fact that a pornographer has given him the money to make a porn film. Hmm. So he then gets in there with this woman that he sees in the flat opposite and like orchestrates a relationship. It's, it's very seedy and it's kind of wrong. Yeah. And as a lot of seventies cinema is. is, And and it's also very Brian De Palma. It's about kind of, it's about voyeurism and all that. I mean, it describes it as a comedy drama. Yeah, it is a comedy. It it is funny. It's dramatic. It has one scene in it. um, There's there's a whole sequence that's in a, um, uh, like in some sort of like derelict building where it's um, uh, a black power movement, white up, and then they black up the audience that come in to see them and treat them like they act like white racists. Right. And they threaten them and knock them around. And, th- and this is basically their, their play. <laughs> and unfortunately, in one scene, they sexually assault someone with a broom. Yeah. It's not that descript, but it happens in the background. There's a lot yeah. of screaming. And it's, you know, and it's, it's weird that this is a black comedy, but also it's really quite difficult in places as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing that got me was just how the, the kind of the visceral nature of watching somebody enjoying the process of filmmaking. And that's what I've always got from Brian De Palma. If you like, if, even if you're watching like something which is not, not his greatest work, but like Snake Eyes with Nicolas Cage, mm. where it's like he does a very. I mean, there's a lot of Hitchcock in in De Palma yeah. films, but like he suddenly the camera comes out of the set and goes and flies over the top of the set, and you're looking through mm. through the buildings without letting you know it's a set strictly. But that's what I love about it because I get to see it and I think it's a set. It's like watching like a yeah, you know Jean Luc Godard film or something where like he does pull the camera back and shows you you're on a set or something. I've always yeah. loved that idea of someone just kind of pulling back that curtain and going like, actually, here's what I'm doing, and you're watching the film that I'm making. And yeah, so that's it. Um, Hi, Mum just blew me away. I saw I saw a filmmaker making a film, and I was just like, well, this is kind of what I got from George Lucas. And I'm getting it again from Brian De Palma, who obviously was the guy that rewrote The Crawl from Star Wars. So it sort of relates. Uh-huh. Um, I think he read George Lucas's opening crawl and went, you know, George, this is shit. <laughs> Let me save you. Well, um, why didn't you say, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not the world's great authority on Star Wars, so right. I'll take any fact that you can throw at me. You <laughs> yeah. could lie if you wanted. Um, right then, we're going to fast forward into the 21st century for your final choice. And this is uh, Edgar Wright's horror comedy Shaun of the Dead from 2004 um, where are you seeing this why, why is this why is something so much later in life uh, having so much impact I didn't see Shaun of the Dead when it came out okay yeah for some reason I remember sitting in a cinema I can't remember what I was watching might have been a, a might have been a disaster movie <laughs> I'm not sure but I was watching I, was, I went to see it and the trailer for Shaun of the Dead came out and it actually made me angry. And I can't explain why. I remember throwing a Malteser at the screen <laughs> like, <laughs> in anger. And I don't know why, because I mean, I love, I love the Romero films. And I think it just kind of like bugged me that someone had made a, like a, a comedy. Mm. And it was just like, well, they're fucking making some bad pastiche of a zombie film. And then I realized that I was wrong. Mm. And I was just like, oh, it's the guys that made Spaced. You know, this that, that that could be all right. But I still didn't see it. And it wasn't until, and this is actually a romance tale. It wasn't until I met my girlfriend 
and we were kind of, we were hanging out, we were courting as it were. And um, I went back to hers one night and she said, have you ever seen Shaun of the Dead? And I was just like, no, I haven't seen Shaun of the Dead. This is in 2006. So I, um, I was round at, round at hers and she put on Shaun of the Dead and it was something that obviously like really tickled her and she said, you need to see this. And we sat down and watched it together and it just became our film. And it was just like, we, we both realized that we had a very similar sense of humor. And I can't believe that I wasted that Malteser throwing at something, which is actually a really perfect film. I think every, like, it's, I think the first two films, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, mm. for me are pitch perfect. They're really, really funny. And they're actually not pastiches at all. They're films that totally love the genre that they're part of rather than they're sending up. I mean, yeah, Shaun of the Dead from a screenwriting point of view is is the perfect rom-com. Yeah. It just happens to be set in a zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Which is yeah. quite, quite a trick to pull off. But it's also a fantastic yeah. horror film as well. But it still has there, horror beats. Yeah, and there are moments in it that are genuinely quite upsetting. Like when mm. they run over the guy in the street and then they pull up to see if he's okay. And there's the whole joke where he's like, oh, it's all right, he's a zombie. But the guy actually scares me. Mm. <laughs> so it's weird to be to to find something hilarious and scary at the same time and they pulled it off it's fucking brilliant but yeah so the thing that really got me about that film was it became our film me and my girlfriend's yeah. film and we're still together you know all these years later and we're parents and we live in a house around a corner from you and so yeah that film is really important to me and and I like Edgar Wright like I don't know him personally we did speak once via direct message on Twitter when I put up, it was around the time the Queen died last year mm. and I put up a, a, a gif of um, of Simon Pegg saying, goodbye Liz from Shaun of the Dead. And he was like, please send me that. That's that's fantastic. Um, so we spoke really briefly. But yeah, I just he just seems like someone, I mean, he's around the same age as me. He's got really inter- like in similar interests. I've always just kind of struck me as like, if I ever bumped into Edgar Wright, I think we'd probably have a lot to chat about. But I'm also not a stalker. <laughs> I should add in the days of, you know, like hyper connectivity. So, so what, what, what would be a scene that stands out for you in, in Shaun of the Dead? The scene that stands out most is when they're walking down the back alley mm. of the houses and they come across uh, his ex-girlfriend's friends and mum and they're like the kind of mirror image of the two. And I love the joke and I love the gag, but the thing that actually I love most about it is the back alleys of suburban houses because it just totally reminds me of growing up in, mm. in suburbia. And and that's one of the things that actually really hit me. Like My girlfriend always jokes and says that Sean's mum really reminds her of my mum. The kind of like not wanting to worry him, even though she's basically about to turn into a zombie and all that. I mean, like my best friend, like this is quite sad, but my best friend hanged himself mm. when I was 25. And my mom didn't tell me straight away because she's like, I thought it might upset you. And I was like, well, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would. But so it's kind of, they got that. They, they, there's so many beats in that film. They got so many characters and so many aspects of, of that kind of lifestyle to a T and it really resonated but the most important thing is it was the film that yeah. really made me realise that it was like me and my girlfriend were meant to be together that's quite powerful and the other thing is it opens with Ghost Town by the specials which is obviously a really important tune there we go and on that on that cultural bombshell <laughs> I thank you for three films that have impacted everything in your adult life we had Star Wars because that's all there ever was uh, <laughs> Hi Mom 
Brian De Palma's early movie. Hi, Mum, with the exclamation mark. With the exclamation mark, yes. And Shaun of the Dead from 2004. And it just gives me DJ Wrong Tom to say thank you very much for joining me on the Britflix podcast. Cheers for getting us in. It was great. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.